Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 24th, 2022. Um, this month, of course, has been dominated by Putin's invasion of Ukraine and inflation and other very serious subjects, slightly less serious, although not totally unserious, with some news that may have been overlooked by many of you earlier this month. Amazon are closing all their bricks and mortar bookshops, um, as well as their pop-up stores. I'm not entirely sure what a pop-up store does, but it's being popped down by the new uh, people in control of Amazon. Um, they're closing their bookstores, all their four-star shops as well, uh, not only in the United States, but in the UK. Uh, that includes 68 retail stores, uh, which includes a number of uh, stores in Chicago, New York, San Francisco. Um, what's happening is that the, the bookstores are shutting and the grocery chain, and I assume that's not just Amazon, but Whole Foods, is expanding now. Some people might be disappointed with that, but I'm guessing that my guest today on the show, Jeff Deutsch, who runs a very famous bookstore in uh, Chicago called The Semery Co-op, uh, as well as being the author of a wonderful new book in praise of books, uh, in praise of good bookstores, is not entirely depressed by that Amazon news. Uh, Jeff, uh, what is your interpretation of Amazon's decision to close all their bookstores? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I wouldn't say that I'm ever happy about any bookstore going out of business. Um, I think what, what uh, concerns me the most about our, the current state of bookselling uh, is that the largest seller of books in the country is, in fact, not a bookseller per se, is not involved in the industry, doesn't think about the full uh, supply chain and what it takes to, to support the work that goes into creating books. Um, and that is of concern for sure. Uh, that said, I've been a bookseller my entire life and our job is one of enthusiasm. So I'm actually really not a critic of anyone uh, per se, uh, but I, I do want to celebrate the great bookstores, certainly in Chicago and New York and throughout the globe who are committed to the entire ecosystem and the, the work that actually goes into not just creating uh, great bookstores, but also books and authors and editors and fact checkers and everyone along the line. Jeff, this subject of the crisis of the retail bookstore, especially the specialist bookstore, is an old one. It certainly um, is intimately bound up with the rise of Amazon and of the uh, of the disruptive nature of the, the Internet. Uh, when would you date the crisis of the modern bookstore from? Um, I, 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 the crisis of the modern bookstore. I think that's that's your term, not mine. I wouldn't I wouldn't use that term. Um, in fact, one of the well, uh, the business crisis, the the fact that so many have closed, although fewer and fewer now are closing, and there seems to be some sort of yeah, pushback. Yeah. No, I I, I I see it a little bit differently, and the book speaks to uh, the full history, which actually um, acknowledges that booksellers for uh, you know, decades, uh, but even centuries, have been saying that the the business is in crisis and. I think that the, the argument that I'm making is that the retail model of bookselling, and you use that term retail, which I, I think is right, uh, is actually the problem that we are not a retailer, booksellers, even though we sell things, uh, but we're not a retailer. And the idea that 
the difference between the cost uh, and the list price of uh, any item is how you make your living, which is retail, is a way for bookstores to survive is just fallacious. And so the, the book uh, speaks to the cultural work that goes into creating bookstores and also the cultural imperative of having spaces for browsing books, spaces for discovery, uh, spaces that are patient and think deeply about what it means to be among books uh, and the presence of books in a community, and that that work is not actually retail work. So not only is there no crisis, to your point, uh, I think you were saying that there's some pushback. There is an incredibly exciting world of uh, booksellers and especially young, young booksellers, 20s, 30s, 40s, who are so moved by the work of creating that community, creating that environment. And so there, there's actually a tremendous boon in bookselling. What I am celebrating in the book is that world. Uh, and there's not really much of an argument per se, but our stores, you mentioned the seminary co-op bookstores, we're 60 year old bookstore. And in 2019, we became the first and we're currently the only not-for-profit bookstore whose mission is bookselling. And the idea behind that is to say that this is not a for-profit venture for us. We're not interested in the retail side of it. We're interested in great customer service and some of the things that go into a retailer, but that's not why we're here. We're actually here to provide a cultural value to the South side of Chicago. And, and actually globally, we have a global audience. And that that model is one that's one of many that's worth exploring. Now there are wonderful bookstores that are for-profit bookstores as well. And there are wonderful bookstores that carry sidelines and other things. What we do differently is that we have nearly 100% books, uh, not coffee, not socks, anything like that, uh, even greeting cards at the seminary co-op. And that that experience of being among books exclusively is a singular experience that we would do well as a culture, as a society to support in multiple ways, not just this one bookstore that has it. Or there are a few throughout the country who have that. I mean, I take your point, but on the other hand, you still need to pay your bills. You need to pay exactly. your rent. You have to exactly. feed your children and clothe your children. So you need to make it pay. What's mm -hmm. the difference between a for-profit and non-profit bookstore? Yeah, so it's it's the point. Thank you for that. And of course, you need to make it pay. And that is the, the argument here with the existence of the bookstore, not with my book particularly, but the existence of our bookstore is to say that there are other ways to fund these stores. It's not just retail. When, and you mentioned Amazon, who has, um, if there's any crisis, uh, and a, a crisis is not a word I would use, actually. If there's any, um, is, what's what I think is destructive about what Amazon's done over the last 20 years, and we're all you know part of this, it's not Amazon only, is devalued the book and really uh, taken something that is a, a, could be a great cultural treasure, can provide incredible value over a lifetime, and said, well, for 20% off or 30% off, it'll actually be you know a good value to you, consumer. And at full price, you're probably paying too much, which is a little, a little silly when you think about what, what a, a good book, what a book that sticks with you can do. And so the argument about the not-for-profit model is to say that there are other ways to think about the work of book selling. So two really important points. One is in the 21st century, there is no, there are virtually no readers uh, who need a bookstore to buy books. Uh, they're readily available online. And then the second one is that point that it's, virtually impossible for a new bookstore to make a living off of the margins of book sales alone, that retail model. So the question becomes, why have a bookstore at all? And once we answer that we want one, and I, I do, and that's really what the book is about, is the celebration of the experience of bookstores, and I'd love to get into that. But let's say we do want a bookstore. 
how do we then finance it? What is the model where we can provide financial support for the specific work that bookstores can do that a book delivery online uh, wholesaler can't do? And those things have to do with filtration. They have to do with selection, assemblage, enthusiasm. These are the qualities that make great booksellers and they're of tremendous value. And we haven't, we've been a very modest, uh, it's been a modest trade in a way that, um, and I will belie that point by raving about us, but uh, it's it's been a modest trade and we haven't gone out into the market and said, here are the things that we do that no one else does and we should be paid for it. We have humbly uh, kind of uh, embraced or accepted this uh, inherited model of retail that really is not built to support the kind of work that we do. If it were, if we did stick to a retail model, then we would only sell books that move quickly, that turn quickly, that we can sell in bulk. Uh, but the seminary co-op, for instance, and this is true of, of a number of stores, we have a patience about us that we will let a book sit on the shelf because the actual browsing experience is enhanced by the presence of that book, separate from just the sale of it. And that to us is a really critical point of what is the experience of the browser wandering the stacks. I mean, I take all those points, but what could be the other business model? How can you make money well, in addition to or in parallel with actually selling books? Yeah, I appreciate the question, and I'm very happy to answer it, and I will. Uh, but I will say that my my book is not an argument at all. Uh, the existence of our stores is definitely, like, uh, just by dint of its existence, it is something of an argument because it's the first. But I'm not making an argument. I'm just celebrating something that I think that we all should be celebrating more of and be, really be thinking about of what does it mean to be among books? What does it mean to feel the presence of voices that go back centuries that, um, and even within one's own life, a, a book that you might've read when you were younger 20 or 20 years ago and you see it on the shelf and you're reminded of a certain place in time. That's an, an exceptional experience. Um, you know, and, and so you're asking about the argument. Well, the argument of the seminary co-op uh, bookstore, which is again, not what my, my book is not exclusively about, about the co-op, though it certainly draws quite a bit from it. But the argument is that there can be funding models. So there are things like, uh, you know, certainly donations, and uh, there are quite a few. Um, uh, so, so think about, uh, let me let me step back. Think about the, uh, the news industry and the financial model that was established in the 20th century to support the news industry where advertising was used to sell papers in order to um, ensure that that the news, which is a, really a, a civic responsibility in an institution, uh, gets out into the world. Well, we saw all of that crumble and now we're seeing some interesting things happen where uh, foundations, including some foundations that are not 501c3, are working to fund uh, uh, you know, long-form investigative journalism and some of the news that doesn't sell but is critical to an educated populace and uh, to the civic space. Similarly, bookstores are no longer about just the sale of books. It's not, frankly, it's not necessary. Uh, the discovery of those books is necessary. The presence of those books, the culture that is created around these uh, sorts of institutions, that's the part that's important and certainly we should pay for it. If we think about publishers, for instance, publishers have for-profit or not-for-profit models and uh, they both coexist. Some of them raise money through, whether it's fundraising or sponsorship or any number of other creative ways, uh, they do that just as much as a, a you know someone will will sell a book that hits the bestseller list. Uh, so I don't think I don't know what, why the default necessarily would be. Well, we certainly, of course, should be a retail. Tell me why we shouldn't. My argument, actually, in some way, is we inherited this model that was never built to do the thing that most of us love about bookstores. Why did we ever start that way? Actually, why don't we start with 
This is what we're trying to create with bookstores. Again, the presence of books, books that might sell slowly, spaces that really support conversation and thoughtfulness and con contemplation. And let's start there and then think about how to finance it. And frankly, it's, it's relatively cheap if we think about how we spend our money. I, would, I do want to get to your definition of what a good bookstore is. Um, but what I don't understand is what's the difference between what you're envisaging and a library? I mean, there's lots of books in a library. You can be surrounded in a library by book. Yeah, absolutely. And I do speak to this in, in, in the book itself. I love libraries uh, and libraries are phenomenal. And if we, uh, before I answer your question, if you think about, uh, it went back 150 years ago and somebody was, was out, out in the world saying, well, you know, we should have a space for books and actually we should all just pay for it. And we should uh, all just give a little bit of money to ensure that these, these spaces uh, available and the books are available to anyone um, anyone who is in our community. Uh, it would have it would have seemed ridiculous, uh, and and it would be very easy to uh, argue against that that model. And now we have that as a given, and that I think is just wonderful. And I find that encouraging. And we love libraries. I spend personally quite a bit of time in libraries, as I do in other bookstores. There are a lot of differences. Um, so one of the primary differences with libraries and bookstores is that there is something about the ownership of the book. There is something about that, like the, the actual book itself that you buy and carry that is a different book than the book that you borrow for a few weeks um, or that you borrow from a friend or that you, you are perusing uh, elsewhere. And that idea of the engagement with, with that bookstore is important. There's a second part that's, I, I think, critical, which is any good library is is going to always have an incomplete collection on the shelf because those books are checked out, right? And so if you go to a library and you want to see the you know 100 latest books that were released that month, likely most of them aren't going to be on the shelf because someone's reading them. And so you're always looking at uh, you know an incomplete collection, whereas in a good bookstore, you will have a complete collection of everything that, that uh, those buyers and that uh, maybe that owner or um, those stewards have on the shelf and think is important in that moment. And when they book sell, they get replenished. And that creates a completely different environment uh, to browse. Uh, in addition, there uh, one other concern, and I think that this is um, obviously you know, a complex case, but you know, libraries, it used to be that libraries were about books. And obviously, it's, the, the etymology of library uh, has book uh, as its root. But so many of our libraries right now, and maybe for good as well, have whether it's you know internet access or makers labs or uh, instruments or tools. Like there are all these things that are loaned out of a library, and that's wonderful um, that those are loaned out and they're public goods, absolutely. But what does it mean to have a space of just books, nothing else? And I think that part of what um, I'm talking about, you said about the good bookstore. Part of what I'm talking about with the good bookstore is. A bookstore with just books. Uh, it, it needn't. We all love, you know, some of the sidelines of uh, notebooks and socks and uh, any number of things. Uh, but what's the, what is what is the feeling when there are just books around and that the browsing of those books, the community that's created, how is that different? And I think that what the book celebrates, what my book celebrates, is exactly that. It's it's uh, wandering the, the shelves and pulling books off the shelf and sharing lines of a poem or an idea or a parable um, or just an anecdote, a, a nicely formulated sentence, an idea that might be challenging or an idea that might be inspiring. That really can only happen in these spaces and we don't have enough of them. So my, the argument, um, again, not much of an argument to so the celebration is of about those spaces and what could happen if we found a different way to finance them. 
So what you're trying to do, Jeff, is is marry the old idea of the public with um, with with a with a bookstore. Um, it seems as if uh, a, a place, public space, which people can share and they can I mean, talk and 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 share their appreciation for books and for literature. Yeah, I mean, if we think about you know, British coffee houses, uh, that, that's exactly right. Um, so it's not public publicly funded necessarily but it's you know it's a public space and it's a public good uh you know a lot of uh great bookstores talk about the, being the third space where, where um the community can convene and you know i i respect that quite a bit but yeah it's about dialogue and bringing people together um not just you know people who are alive right now but people throughout the ages i mean i have friends I have friends on the shelves i spend a lot more time with some of my friends on the shelves than i do with people who are alive right now and i think that kind of bringing those things together it's a really it's a special special experience um may, may i ask you what, uh, what bookstores you frequent i don't i never go to bookstores i don't no. find them no well uh it, may i ask why uh, clearly because well, i live in san here. francisco so uh -huh. i'm not sure if there are any left City Lights is one of the best. City Lights is actually quite a bit like ours, and they, and they only have books. Uh, they have yeah. an idiosyncratic selection that are, the assemblage is really interesting. Uh, and then uh, I was it's actually a little sectarian, though. Don't you find City Lights? Um, you know the politics and the books. Well, it's the opposite of what you're imagining, which is a, a sort of a public space. So it lends itself to a certain kind of politics and consumer. Well, I, that's I another. Certainly, yeah, I anyway. Don't. I go upstairs to the poetry room upstairs. I go A through Z to the poetry section. And there is, uh, I mean, Ezra Pound was a fascist. Uh, uh, so yeah, the politics are problematic. But yeah, well, that's uh, a good point. They've got its complete, it's complete uh, poetry up there, which I, I enjoy quite a bit. I don't, I don't enjoy his politics, obviously. Uh, I'm speaking with Jeff Deutsch, the author of In Praise of Good Bookstores. Jeff, we're going to take a break now. And then afterwards, I want to come back to this definition of what a good bookstore is and how you celebrate it in your new book. So we'll take a, a short break, and then we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Jeff Deutsch, the author of In Praise of Good Bookstores. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube 
page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Jeff Deutsch, the author of In Praise of Good Bookstores, a new book that's just out. And Jeff, perhaps you might go into the details in terms of the book of what you're arguing of what a book, a good bookstore is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'll begin by saying that I, I have no arguments. Uh, uh, I'll quote Walt Whitman, I have no mockings or arguments. I witness and wait. I and mine, we... Uh, we uh, convinced by our presence. Okay, so uh, and part of what I what I'm excited about is uh, I've I've had the great privilege of working in bookstores since 1994, uh, and that was also the first year that I um, visited the Seminary Co-op Bookstore in Chicago on the south side of Chicago, which is where I work now. And that bookstore is the single most convincing argument I've ever seen on behalf of bookstores in general, uh, and and it's also a tremendously convincing argument on behalf of itself. Again, it just convinces by its presence. It is not articulating anything. Uh, it's not making an argument per se. Um, it is just, it is establishing its, um, it, it, you know, it, it, what it is trying to be. And my book is a celebration of the kind of experience that we have in spaces like that. And it's a, potentially it's a call for more uh, spaces like that to, to help people who might not have been able to come in the door or like me spend, you know, almost 30 years now in book spaces to, to welcome them in and say, this is what it looks like. Let's wander the stacks together. Let's pull books off the shelf and think about what does it mean to, to be among these books? Uh, and so, you know, thinking about what argument there might be, you know, there's, there's definitely a piece around uh, what is the, how do we uh, value the things that matter most to us. And so what some of the things I consider, and I, you know, I go back to, um, you know, Montaigne, and I go back to, uh, to the ancients, and I, I think about, I grew up in a, a Orthodox Jewish world, I, I think about the, the Talmud and the Talmudic tradition, and the different ways in which um, things are evaluated that matter the most to us, right? And so uh, a couple of the, the um, models that I look at, uh, and again, I'm, I'm really just you know, thinking out loud and reflecting, it's not its not an argument. And I think it's important for any potential reader to know that if they're looking for an argument, this is not their book, it's a celebration. Um, but I think about the ways in which, uh, for instance, the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton was founded around the uselessness of useless knowledge, which is a, a Abraham Flexner's idea of what it means to bring scholars together not in order to discover something specific, but just to do the work that they do and to think deeply about the things that they care deeply about. And this, of course, Einstein was famously one of the uh, uh, one of the uh, original scholars there. Uh, and these are things that ended up having tremendous use that came out of it. But that's not why uh, these they were they were supported. Uh, similarly, there's a model in um, in the Orthodox Jewish world that I come out of uh, in, called the Kolel, uh, where there's this partnership between what they call Yisachar and Zavulon. And the idea is that the, um, the merchants are the ones who make the money, who then support the scholars who are doing the more important work and the more valuable work in the community. And it's a complete, it's the opposite of how we think about things per se, which is that the, the value is based on how much money is created. Actually, the money is there to support the inquiry, to support the, the scholarship. And uh, I came up in a world, so my grandfather was uh, a shopkeep. He ran a suit store uh, in, in Brooklyn, New York, um, and, and in, uh, on the Lower East Side for, for quite a while, actually, and then, and then in Brooklyn. And he uh, went to work all day, every day, come home, have dinner with the family, and then go right across the street 
to his synagogue and and study and study with the same group of uh, friends that he had studied with since uh, for for decades, and that was the good life. It was it was not about what does it mean to get um, an, get an education, become certified as educated. Uh, it meant what does it mean mean to like be learned? What does it mean to live a life of meaning and purpose and figure out how um, you know how to think, what to do, find beautiful things, uh, you know, really really uh, engage the world in a way that was about more than just what what the job was now the job was important and he was wonderful at it and I used to, my first job ever was uh folding boxes for a penny a box uh, and everyone in my family that was their first job ever um but that's that wasn't the only point and i think that part of what i'm trying to call attention to are these other models where the actual work of um uh, or rather the actual education itself is not a, a terminal degree that gives one the sense of being educated. It is a practice that creates a learned populace. Is there a, it sounds as if there's almost a religious quality to your vision of a, of a good bookshop. Is, is there much of a difference between a, ch- a good church, a good synagogue and a good bookstore? Um, it's, it's a good question, and it certainly comes up quite a bit in the book because many of us are acolytes, and many of us do make pilgrimages. I actually was recently in your neck of the woods, and I made a pilgrimage to Moe's in, uh, in Berkeley, which is one of the great bookstores. Uh, and uh, we, we, a lot of us think in these reverent, uh, speak in these reverent tones and think in, in these you know, hushed, hallowed ways, the way that r- the religious folks will as well. One of the things I write about is um, the concept of thin places, p- places uh, where uh, you know we're a little bit closer to God. Uh, and somebody had written, actually, uh, uh, somebody at Georgetown University wrote a lovely article about actually City Lights and the Seminary Co-op. Those were the two bookstores that, that he called out and said, these are thin places. Uh, there might be thin places, you know, in the church and synagogues. Uh, these are these are also thin places, and um, I certainly wouldn't make that argument in earnest. Uh, but I, I do find many of us use religious terminology, and some of us just want to run in the door and buy a book and leave. So that is also perfectly fine. Uh, but many of us do do see this as a place of contemplation, rumination, uh, uh, you know, uh, ethical development, uh, inquiry, understanding the world, uh, empathy, things like that. Does it concern you that? This might marginalize the bookstore and the bookstore community. There is certainly a community that's attracted to this, but it probably isn't that mainstream, or maybe I'm being unfair. Um, I mean, uh, certainly the the bookstore, the way you're describing, I don't think you're being unfair. I think that's already the case. Uh, And certainly this isn't for everyone. Um, You know, you mentioned like the the crisis earlier, like the crisis in, in. bookstores it's really about books in general and and it's all of us you know all of us are you know netflix is incredible and there are so many things calling our attention and our phones and all of these things that uh people want to spend time on and that's great like you know we're not um you know condescending about any of those things uh what we really wanted to say is don't forget that there's this incredible uh you know treasure trove of literature and ideas and, and philosophy and uh, and even just great reads that um, are either highly entertaining or edifying or uh, worthy of your attention. And attention, obviously, is, is um, that's where the competition is, uh, right? And so are we marginalized already? Probably. Uh, but uh, even on the margins, I think that there's room for growth and, and more room for us to uh, maybe uh, shed some of the modesty that we've, we've grown up with and, and really celebrate what it is that we love about books and bookstores. And again, one of the things that booksellers do 
I think as well as anyone, if not better, is um, bring enthusiasm into the world. We are so enthusiastic about books. We talk about books all the time. We think about them. We love sharing them. I want to take that enthusiasm and bring it to bookstores themselves. What about the other A, the big technology company beginning with A? We've seen the demise of Amazon, at least when it comes to physical bookstores. But what about the the Apple retail model, which seems to be doing extremely well, very pleasant experiences. Can booksellers learn from Apple retail stores or is that another category not relevant to the to the book experience? Um, it was interesting. I mean, uh, even just seeing the image that you just flashed on the screen and then um, coming back to me and seeing all the spines on the shelf. I mean, uh, you know, the Apple store... Uh, perhaps looks like a museum. That's lovely. Uh, sure. So you see, you know, a few items, and you, and that's that's the selection. Um, I, I think it's uh, we're the opposite in a very important way. And actually, I have a whole chapter devoted to this. Uh, the second chapter is on abundance. Uh, to see how many spines there are. I mean, I've got this is my poetry wall here, and I, I probably have about two thousand volumes. Uh, this is my personal library, um, but. The, the ability to get lost in uh, among these spines and to walk into a store. And I mentioned uh, City Lights going to their poetry section. I, I occasionally have the time to go A, a through Z uh, in that poetry section. I love those days. Um, but often I, I'm just wandering and pulling a book here or there. And every time I go back and we have we have customers who come every day and they come in every day and find new books that they hadn't found before. We have nearly 100,000 titles. Uh, so it's, it's, it's nothing like the Apple Store uh, in that way. Uh, and nor would we want it to be. Um, you're not greeted when you come in. Uh, you, you make your own flight path to wh whatever you're interested in. Uh, you could get lost for hours and uh, and still, again, come back the next day. So um, no, nothing against the Apple Store, but uh, it, it couldn't be more different, I think. The reason I bring up the Apple Store is because the enthusiasm of the people working there seems quite in, in, infectious uh, in, in contrast with a lot of Right. traditional bookstores or other traditional stores. I'm assuming, though, that your model and your bookstore and your vision um, is dependent on extremely enthusiastic and energetic people working in the store. Yeah, well, 100%, 100%. Um, and, but it's interesting to think about what what um, are the Apple customers enthusiastic about, right? They're um, enthusiastic about specific the brand and the specific devices that the brand creates. Um, they're not enthusiastic. I mean, Apple has all of the books. Most of the books that are on my shelf are available in a, a you know iPad or, or um, on the computer. So, uh, what do you use that device for? Is a different question. So, yeah, I, I think it, I, I mean, it could be more different actually. Um, now that we're talking it through and recognizing that we carry books. Um, across publishers. I mean, there are hundreds of publishers. There are hundreds of thousands of books published every year. We look, uh, I and the buyers at the store personally look through 30,000 books that are published every single year to figure out the books that we're going to bring in. And we look at 30,000 additional books that sell every year, one by one, and decide whether or not we're going to bring them back in or not. Some of them sell once a year. Uh, some of them sell once every three years. And we then still make the very bad business decision if we're retailers to bring the books back in. One of the numbers that I share and that I, I've shared in a lot of the talks I've done is that of, and this is actually an argument on behalf of this being a good business model, not a good retail model, but a good business model. It's not as though no one wants these books. And here's why. Of the 28,000 books that we sold at the seminary call the last full year we were open before the, the pandemic, 60% uh, of them were one copy meaning that there was one reader who walked in the door and they were the only one that entire year who wanted that book. 
Now, that's a lot of books that we sold, uh, you know, 16,000 books that we sold to one time to one reader. That's a remarkable number, but it's not an efficient business model. And one of the things that I maybe argue on behalf of, but certainly celebrate, is the wise inefficiency that booksellers, good booksellers, uh, practice. And we don't want to be uh, unwise in our inefficiency. We don't want to be slow for the sake of slowness or uh, you know, um, sloppy or things like that. But we do want to create an environment where those 16,000 people will find that book because you know what? Most bookstores won't carry them at all. And certainly when they sell, won't restock them because there isn't a financial model that supports that. But isn't that the point of the internet? Is it's this infinite place uh, where you can just order really? anything, and then the experience, the bookstore experience or the retail experience, anywhere needs to be a physical one. So why not combine a good bookstore with a good restaurant or a good bar or a good clothing store? Why not? Why not broaden uh, the bookstore rather than narrow it, as you're suggesting, and make it just about books? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I would characterize it as broadening it uh, personally, because each of those books is its own universe. But um, how, how does one discover those 16,000 books? How, how does one know when they go to the search bar to look for that book? Right. Uh, and that, that's a big part of where the public, why the publishers love bookstores and especially independent bookstores. But any good bookstore, uh, publishers can sell as many books through, uh, you know, there, there won't be an appreciable difference uh, when publishers, you know, if book, all the bookstores went away, publishers would still sell a similar amount of books because readers will find books. But what books will they be selling? And how will books be discovered? And think about authors who uh, maybe their first book doesn't do that well. Maybe their second book doesn't do that well. What publisher is going to give them a chance to do a third book and, and a fourth book? And some of these, most of the authors that, uh, that we know and love start off that way that's how that is the model for for authors and if readers can't find those books then they're they're not going to continue in their careers and so there's a whole again this is a there's an entire industry that's built around creating these amazing cultural works and bookstores are a tremendous part of it and yet we think of ourselves as retailers and even to think like why not combine it with other things well because it's the most valuable thing we have. I mean, why why not just build more bookstores? I mean, my art, you know, our celebration really indicates like this is the thing that we should be preserving. Uh, why do we need a, a coffee? Go go to the coffee shop, get your coffee, come on in, no problem. Uh, but there's only one store that I know of that has a hundred thousand new books with mostly university press titles, small press titles, or older titles. Uh, so it's not the books that even the books, and you feature wonderful authors on your podcast. It's not, even not. It's not that. It's not just those. It's the books that they might have published ten years ago, or that their colleagues published uh, ten years ago, or that teachers published 50 years ago. I mean, it's, it's a different kind of book. And so, uh, go on the homepage of BarnesandNoble.com we're probably not going to have a single one of those books, maybe a couple featured at the front of our store. The, what's featured in front of our store are books that are not really on the shelf anywhere else, certainly not on display. Well, that's certainly an interesting argument. Uh, Jeff Deutsch uh, making this argument and in praise of good bookstores, a very radical argument, one I think counterintuitive and against many commercial fashions, but very noble uh, and it's a wonderful read. Uh, Jeff, what else should people be reading these days in addition to your new book? I, it's a dangerous question to ask you. You'll probably spend the rest of the <laughs> afternoon telling me. Uh, perhaps you might select one or two books that most of my viewers won't be familiar with, but you think are really a valuable read. Sure. Be, a, be a bookstore 
helper for the moment for my listeners, sure. for my viewers? Sure. I, I recently, uh, I've read two wonderful books recently, um, both of which, so I often read read books that are older and uh, reread. I love rereading books, um, but I read two books that were published in the last six months that I'd love to share. Uh, one is uh, Princeton University Press published this amazing book called The Translator of Desires. And it is an older book, but it's a new translation of, um, it's uh, Arabic love poetry. And, it, you know, it's something, this is a really good example of the kind of book that we would carry. It's 900 years old, right? So it's published 900 years ago. It reads like it was written yesterday. It is absolutely stunning. The language is incredible and the book itself is beautiful. Um, and so that that's one I would recommend. And then there was a book that was published very quietly by a publisher called Transit, uh, which is a small, small press actually in the Bay Area. They're in uh, Oakland or Burke, uh, Oakland, I believe. And it's uh, a book called Aftermath by Preeti Tanasia. And it is one of the most um, unique reads I, I, I've ever encountered. It's uh, Preeti Tanasia is a novelist, actually, uh, who had a huge book out with Knopf a few years ago, a few years ago called We That Are Young, uh, which was a retelling of King Lear uh, in uh, in South Asia. And it was it's it's an uh, incredible novel. This is a work of nonfiction around. Um, well, it, it's difficult to describe because it's almost its own. Its own um, I, I, it's, a, it's a singular book, uh, but what it does is it takes the experience of tr of trauma, and this is somebody who is writing from a place of uh, great literary skill, and actually challenges language itself uh, to tell the story of what this trauma looked like, while also maintaining political commitment, aesthetic commitment, personal health, uh, and writing this gorgeous, gorgeous book. So um, I'd recommend both of those those titles as well. Are they books one can read on an aircraft or at an airport? Um, certainly. Uh, I mean, any collection of poetry I find to be a great, great traveling companion, uh, for sure. I don't think you'd find them necessarily at an airport bookstore, uh, but any good. Yeah, I think an airport bookstore, uh, Jeff, is a contradiction in terms. Uh, finally, uh, in praise of good bookstores, author Jeff Deutsch. Uh, Jeff, who's in charge of the world? Who's running the show these days? Uh, I love this question that you have. Um, I, I, here's, here's a, what I, I earnestly think. Um, I'm going to, if it's okay, pull from a, a, a book, uh, an older book called Middlemarch uh, by George Eliot, which um, I, many of your readers, I'm sure, have read and loved. Uh, and I, I think, as far as I'm concerned, uh, this describes the folks who are, who are uh, running the world. Uh, this is actually the very last, the very last paragraph. It says the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. I don't think we know the people who are, who are running the world, or I should say the people who are running our worlds are people around us and they're people who um, commit unhistoric acts and their effects are incalculably diffusive, and that is uh, a beautiful, beautiful thing. Obviously, they don't get the press, and uh, but I think that that those are the people that I I would say are running the world.